This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Brunwyn Milkins. Hey, mental workers. How do you manage your emotions in sessions? What about after sessions? And what about before sessions? Today, we have a guest with us to discuss the very important topic of managing emotional labor. His name is James Clark. He's a clinical psychologist and a PhD candidate. And I am very excited to have you with us, James. Very excited to be here. Thanks, Bronwyn. So, James, let's dive straight into it. I'm interested to know how you came into contact with this topic of emotional labor. How'd you get into it? Yeah, um, so... Part of it was my, so I finished my, my master's degree um, and then I went into private practice um, for, for the registration endorsement um, for a couple of years. And I always knew that I wanted to, to get into or do a PhD, but I just didn't know what the topic was. So I used that, that time just to really kind of, I guess, explore what I wanted to, to, to look at. In that time, you know, with all the stresses and the strains of um, endorsement and full-time clinical work, um, I think I didn't know it at the time, but I started to experience burnout and I have a, somebody that has sort of acted as a bit of a mentor for me. I'd be meeting with him quite regularly, um, just to kind of process just life in general, you know, but also future, future steps and things that I wanted to, to look at. And he, uh, he did his PhD in emotional labor. Um, and even though he doesn't come from a clinical background, he sort of was pointing out a few things um, in my own experience and uh, and my own, you know, what was what was happening for me. Um, and I guess that really sparked the interest, you know, in it. And then we started talking about how, you know, when the conversation turned towards um, research and what we wanted, to, what I wanted to look at, um, you know, it was interesting noting that there was very little research on on this topic of emotional labour in psychologists and how it impacts people. And so um, from there, it, I guess it really just kind of grew from there and, and the interest grew from there. And the more I read about it, the more I, I realized, hey, this is something that we're not talking about. And this is something that's really important. Yeah, because I found it staggering to see your article. So listeners, James has published an article, probably multiple articles on emotional labor. It's his focus of his PhD research. And I was being a little nerd and going through the psychology journals and I saw James's article on emotional labor and I thought, I have not seen anything on this before. And then when I read your article, James, I noted that you also said in the article that this is not mostly an explored area for psychologists. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's something that has had very little application to psychology. Um, th there's lots of application in other other professions, you know, and particularly like retail and and um, you know, the original emotional labor text was written on um, airline hosts. But yeah, there's just you know very very little application to, to psychologists. There's a little bit in the in the healthcare literature, like around. Uh, nurses and, and what have you and other sort of healthcare professions, but very, very little on psychologists and actually very little that specifically focuses on. So even where psychologists have been researched, it's been in conjunction with all kinds of other um, professions, not not exclusively psychologists. It just strikes me so weird because as you're pointing out in your introduction there, you said that you noticed burnout in yourself and you also had your mentor who had done the their PhD on emotional labor. And so that led you down this path of investigating it. But it's such a central component of our work. Like emotion is our bread and butter of psychologists. So it's just staggering, really, don't you think? 
Absolutely. And I, and I think we kind of talk about it a little bit in, in the frame of counter-transference um, and counter-transference management, but it's, it's a distinct construct and, and it is different to counter-transference. So we don't really get that, you know, while we might talk about the reactions that we have to clients and things like that, we don't talk about the next step, which is our, how do we actively process this? Um, because how we actively process it determines the outcomes that we'll have from it. Yeah, so let's talk about it. Let's get some definitions out then. What is emotional labor? Because I'm going to assume that it's different to what a retail worker experiences or is it the same thing? Conceptually, it's the same, but the application on the ground is different. So um, conceptually, emotional labor refers to the process of regulating our emotions to be consistent with what's required from us from our occupational role. Um, So there's a couple of different components. There's the component, there's the requirements components so it's the um what are the rules that govern um what is okay to express emotionally and what isn't okay to express emotionally and that can be dynamic and change and be contextual and um you know it's obviously very different for different professions then you've got uh, the emotion regulation component so when we're experiencing an emotion that is not consistent with those display rules and what we want to express how do we actually regulate that internally? And it's thought that we can do that through two main mechanisms. One would be surface acting, which is where we might fake our emotions or or suppress them. Um, And the other is through deep acting, which is using a strategy that actively changes what we're feeling to be consistent with what we want to express. Um, And then the last component is just the emotion performance. So outside, you know, what, what are the publicly observable expressions of emotion um, that the person's engaging with. That's kind of like the concept of it, but you can see like how that translates to on the ground, you know, in, in practice um, is very different depending on, on different professions. So for example, an airline hostess might have to smile and nod when an uh, airline passenger asks for a fifth packet of biscuits and they're <laughs> feeling frustrated. But in psychotherapy, if a client tells us that their family member has just passed away and we notice an overwhelming emotion in ourselves, we have to decide how we're going to deal with that. So I can see how it's qualitatively different. One of the interesting things about um, emotional labor in the context of psychotherapy is that even though we might be experiencing an emotion that is inconsistent with what we want to express at times, so you know, in the case of feeling frustrated with the client and not wanting to let that you know, be expressed to the client. But sometimes even when the emotions that we want to express are congruent with um, what we end up expressing in terms of the, the domain or the content of the emotion, like say if we're sharing um, sadness in the context of grief, you know, and that's totally appropriate and c- congruent with what's happening, there's still going to be a regulation or a modulation in terms of the intensity of what we might be expressing. So the example that you just gave, Roman, you know, if somebody, if you're having a real overwhelming reaction yourself, it's unlikely that we might express that entirely 100% authentically. Mm. You know, we might, we might be expressing it in a more contained way or a more um, cognitive way, maybe even? Yeah, no, I I get that. I can see that even in my own practice hearing that if I've had clients who are sharing an overwhelming emotion, I notice that in myself and they might be crying a lot. Even in myself, I regulate that and I might say something like, usually my extreme like emotional connection with them is like my heart goes out to you. I'm really feeling that with you right now, but I won't cry with them. Yeah, and yet you're still holding that. That's still within you, yeah, Mm. yeah. James, why do we actually care about this in psychotherapists? 
Well, emotional labor really, uh, you know, it links to a lot of important outcomes. Um, so it has a really strong link with burnout in a lot of other professions. Um, and my research and also another researcher in Sydney, Anthony Joffe, has started to show that this is um, this connection between emotional labor and burnout is also relevant to, to psychologists and present in our profession. Um, but there are other things as well, like other outcomes like job turnover, um, physical well-being, physical illness, intention to, to turn over in your job. Um, so there's lots of different, oh, and, and also just at the at bottom line, um, our performance as well. Yeah. So, you know, our, uh, our capacity to be more authentic has positive benefits or positive impacts on our actual performance in the role and also um, consumer satisfaction as well. So is the finding around that, that if we're more authentic in the therapy space, then clients are more satisfied with their therapy? Is that something that you're aware of that is correlated? That's found in other professions. Oh, okay, so it hasn't been, hasn't been looked at in the context of psychotherapy, but I don't, yeah, I don't really see why that wouldn't be the case. I was looking at some research the other week and I was in an autism journal and there's a qualitative study that's been done with autistic clients and they say that they actually value therapist authenticity rather than detachment. Maybe there's some preliminary evidence from certain client groups perhaps. Definitely, definitely. And I think even if you just think about it for your own self, like we, I think all of us have pretty good BS radars, yeah. you know what I mean? And when you're sitting with somebody that you don't feel like is being genuine with you, uh, for whatever reason that may be, there's like a little uh, subconscious alarm that goes off that just sort of there's a discomfort with that, you know. It's so so true. I, yeah, in all our relationships, authenticity is just such an important thing. Mm. So what I'm hearing from you is that it does us good in terms of our well-being to be more emotionally authentic, and it does our clients good as well. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's that's sort of my. I think often when we talk about ideas of self-care and emotional labor, and you turn the lens on us as therapists, I think a lot of us because of our self-sacrificing nature, might not pay as much attention to it as we, as we perhaps should. So that's also my way of selling it to those people too, is that, well, it's not only going to be good for you, but it's also going to be good for your clients as well. Beautiful. Let's move on then to what emotional labor do psychologists actually carry? And this is, I hope this is going to be a validating minute or two for the self-sacrificers, for the perfectionists, because I think we really need to understand how much we actually do. Tell us, James. Big question. Really, really big question. I think. Um, so part of the research that, or part of the interviews that I did that um, that we didn't write up just because it wasn't really quite relevant to the question was just really mapping out, you know, the kinds of reactions that people have and the kinds of emotional labor that we experience. And it was, it, what stood out to me, it was quite surprising was it was just the full gamut of emotions, you know, that we, we hold um, as a consequence of, of our work. So not only are we required to be able to experience and express, you know, the full range of emotions, but there's also so much there in terms of, you know, in session, we're so focused on meeting the client's needs, rightly so, because that's, that's, that's our role. But there's so much that we're holding as a result of that. Um, and there's so much that we're exposed to that if we're not finding ways outside of those sessions, to really um, to manage that better and to, to sit with it and to express it in appropriate ways or finding ways to put that, that emotion that we're carrying then, then absolutely can have quite a detrimental impact on us. So there's not only just so many different kinds of reactions that we might have, but I think that there's so much stuff that goes on within our own selves, you know, in terms of you know, counter-transference and those sorts of concepts 
um, as well as everything that we might be holding outside of the counter-transference space as well. So what's happening with us at home? You know, what's happening with our family and our personal relationships and just life in general and, you know, all these other factors that we're coming into the room with holding as a human being um, and, and, you know, having to sit with um, while being so focused on, on another person and what's happening for them. Wow. When I hear you say that, I definitely do feel validated in myself and I hope that listeners did too, because it really reflects how huge our task is. Even before clients walk in the door, it sounds like we're making complex decisions about the emotions that we're going to express, how we're going to regulate that in the session and what we're going to do after. Is that right? Definitely. And from session to session as well, you know, we we finish up with one client and say, if we've done some trauma processing or something like that, and it's had a really significant impact on us. And then we have maybe 10 minutes to write our notes, have a drink of water, go to the toilet and then meet the next client. And we're almost trying to start that as a blank slate for the next client. And that's, that's so incredibly challenging for any human to be able to do. Like we wouldn't expect that of any person on the street just to be able to have that sort of conversation and walk away and go into another really deep and meaningful, difficult conversation. Um, without having that lingering emotion sitting with them. Mm, This really gives validity to quite often I might hear, maybe not quite often, but I have heard people say psychotherapy is just talking. And I always (laughs) notice an intense anger in myself when I hear that. And I think hearing you talk, I know the reason why, because I'm like, it's not just talking. You don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, uh, there was one of the one of the participants in um in the, in the qualitative interview said, "Look, this is not just tea and biscuits." Yes, That's oh not my what goodness, we're doing yes. Now. I love that. (laughs) Fantastic. So yes, we do carry so much. And as you're talking, I was reflecting in my office, I do have, it's a very common uh, emotion wheel and it's a resource and it has all the emotions. And sometimes Mm. I get clients to, if I want them to label their emotions, I get them to identify from the emotion wheel. And hearing Mm. you talk, I'm like, I experience all of those emotions in the emotion wheel with my clients myself, but I'm only expressing a very narrow range of emotions or a dulled range of emotions that's appropriate to express and managing that is a significant task as you've found through your research definitely and I think even when you think about you know our psychological resources so I guess we've got or just our general resources that we bring to to work we've got our cognitive resources our emotional resources and our physical resources certain jobs will be heavy on one but not the other you know so there might be some jobs that are heavy on physical resources but maybe not so much on the emotional side or, or vice versa but our job is is very cognitive and very emotionally demanding, mm. you know, and I think that often that gets overlooked as the in terms of the the emotional demands of the work that we that we have. Absolutely, I love that, and I agree with that one hundred percent. So, James, let's move on to how do we manage emotional labor? Yeah, good question. I would say that the literature sort of shows that deep acting is preferred. To surface acting and what that means is actively trying to um you know use a strategy that aligns what we're feeling or sort of realigns yeah what we're what we're feeling with what we're expressing so in the the article that we're referencing there there were lots of different ways that people talked about trying to do that um but there was you know things like what well, basically it all came down to finding ways to to, to realign that emotion or to get distance from it so one way that people might talk about that is um, like using a formulation. So falling back on, okay, this might be a challenging behavior that I'm seeing right now, but what's behind that? So a classic example of that might be, um, say, if you're working with um, a client that has strong narcissistic traits and you, you're experience, experiencing that sort of devaluing that comes with that, 
that is likely to activate some frustration and some anger or some hurt within us. But if we take a moment to kind of see where that behavior is coming from. So, you know, what's the traumatized young person that sits behind that narcissistic behavior? Um, that can help us activate maybe that compassion that we want to express to that person in the session. So we can say things like we could do self-talk, for example, this person isn't trying to devalue me. I understand that this behavior is coming from a place where they feel vulnerable and scared and they're just showing up the best they can today. Something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a coping behavior that I'm seeing here. This isn't personal about me. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, yeah. So self-talk, you know, definitely, definitely in terms of, I think compassionate self-talk and, and self-compassionate self-talk is important um, because that's so aligned with what we're required to express, you know, with clients. Yes. But the other part to it as well, something that other people maybe found, found useful was um, using strategies to psychologically distance themselves um, from the what they're experiencing as well. So this is sort of more like the psychological flexibility, um, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy, mindfulness skills, where we're not necessarily trying to change what we're experiencing, but we're just trying to find a way to be able to sit with it in a more effective way and still act outwardly that in ways that are consistent with our values. So how that kind of connects with emotional labor concepts is that it's kind of like, in a way, we're maybe doing a little bit of surface acting, um, by maybe expressing or, or, or engaging with emotional displays that might not be 100% consistent with what we're feeling at that time. But what the, the real key part is that we're not suppressing what we're feeling. We're not trying to push that down or push it away. We're, we're making room and expanding around that feeling. So that was, that was something else that people talked about as being quite useful for them. That's really interesting. So I'm trying to think of an example with myself. Can you tell me if this is an example of distancing or if I'm off track? So for example, yeah. when a client experiences an injustice and I find that I am upset at that injustice as well, I don't go swearing about the person who has committed the injustice to my client, but I might say something like, this anger is valid. I am so angry on your behalf, or I might tone that down a bit depending on the client because sometimes if I feel along with them with anger too much, then it it can make the anger increase for them. But I am trying to be authentic and express that the anger is not the problem here. What happened was the injustice. Is that an example of emotional distancing? Well, I think well, that's also a really good example of is how it's possible to do this interpersonally as well, to share reactions to things and and actually the I think what you're doing there is expressing emotion authentically. You're kind of expressing the reaction that you're having in, a, in an appropriate way, you know. Um, so, and that's another thing that's sort of shown up is the more that we can be authentic with our reactions with clients, um, the better that's also going to be for us, you know. Mm. And I think this also comes down to process work as well. Like when, you know, how do you uh, do you express or find ways to express your countertransference reactions to clients in ways that are going to be functional and, and helpful um, and not actually about servicing our needs, but, you know, in, in the service of the therapy. But that's also something that people have found useful too is, is um, not shying away from that emotion and actually using those those moments of dissonance um, to to inform the therapy or or make a comment on the process side of things in in therapy. Wow. Okay. So I just need to speak to the terrified therapist in myself that heard that <laughs> because I think that process comments is actually quite an advanced skill. What do you think? Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. I think that that comes down after you feel like you've mastered the the, the basic process of what therapy is and, and, and um, you know, maybe some of the basic uh, therapeutic models and things like that. And then you're more free to then start to think about, um, well, once that becomes more automatic, you, you, you're more free to start to think about what's happening between you and the client. You have more mental space to dedicate to that and you can start um, looking at that. So I think it is a difficult skill, but I think it's something that's important to develop. And, and I think supervision is a really great space to be able to, to try to develop that skill. Yeah, let's talk about that because I agree with process comments being it's not impossible listeners, you can develop it over time. But as the supervisory space could be a great place to actually develop these process comments skill as well as other ways of regulating our emotions. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. And, and I think it helps you well, with good supervision, of course, is the qualifier here, but it gives you that safe space to actually try out or maybe even role play ways of, of making those process comments. Um, it also can help you clarify within yourself what actually it is that you want to express at those times and maybe what actually is going on, what's, what's your stuff, what's the client's stuff. So, yeah, and so I think that it can be helpful in, in developing the skill to make process comments, but also to help manage the emotional labor process as well. Like I think supervision is a great place um, to put these reactions, um, to unpack them and explore what's happening for you, but also maybe find practical ways that you can, you know, as we are saying before, finding ways to be able to regulate that emotion um, so that we're more consistent, you know, with with, uh, what we want to express. So the example I gave about connecting with the, the vulnerable child that sits underneath a difficult behavior in the room and um, that's something that we might not be able to do in the moment you know first time that's something that we might have to develop in supervision so that next time we're able and ready to deploy deploy that cognitive style yeah i'd say that i've recently just come out of that stage so i used to pick it up and then next session i would be like oh, i'm going to come back to this and address it but now yeah. i can do it in the moment but listeners that's after a few years of actually practicing yeah. this and i had to deliberately practice it every session to try out a process comment even if it was just like, I'm noticing this in the room, or I wonder if this is happening. Did you find that skill jump for you as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I can certainly relate to the anxiety in doing that early on. But I think over over time, and I think, you know, working with particular um, client groups was helpful for that as well, where yeah. maybe attachment. So clinically, I work in the, the AOD space. Um, and a lot of our clients have um, trauma histories and, and attachment um, difficulties. And all of that is present in the room with you. So I think being exposed to that client group has meant that for me, that's something that I've had more opportunity to kind of do and, and to reflect on yeah. um, and to see as important as a ther- as a mechanism of, of change in the therapeutic space. Mm. And just coming back to supervision, I think just talking about this has brought up a lot of other things for me as well. Firstly, what to do if your supervisor doesn't talk about emotions with you. I mentioned this to you off air, but sometimes I've had feedback from listeners that supervisors don't talk about emotions. They might be focused more on the process and that be, might be more appropriate to early career psychs. But it sounds like from your research that we could also benefit from discussing our emotional reactions to clients in supervision. Could that be an implication? Certainly, there's a big implication, I think, of, of the paper is that it can be a peer supervision space you know, if that's more appropriate, you know. Um, but I think one-on-one supervision has an enormous potential to help people with being able to reflect on the sorts of emotional experiences that we're having, um, really unpacking it, understanding it, 
and then um, being able to take that forward, you know, working with clients in more, more functional ways, more appropriate ways, or ways that are going to help us, uh, you know, be more authentic, you know, in the room with clients. And, you know, and it does depend supervisor to supervisor how comfortable they are talking about personal things. Yeah. Um, and the, I guess that line between supervision and therapy, you know, as well. Um, but uh, my perspective is that I think supervision is, is a really important space, um, important space to provide support to, to clinicians. Um, and sometimes that does mean having to explore maybe what's happening on, in the person's personal life that might be contributing to things or personal reactions um, to clients. Um, provided it's always done in a respectful way and, you know, within the supervisee's consent. No, I agree. I think that can be brought up and, and probably should be brought up in supervision, actually. So, for example, if you're working with someone who has a trauma history and let's say the content of that matches something in your own history and so you notice it brings up more emotion than usual, I think it's good to acknowledge that and then discuss ways that the supervisee might seek help to address that. So it no longer, I guess, perhaps triggers the same emotions with that client or they can gain some emotional distance from it. Absolutely. And I think that, I think if you went, we went back and looked at the tradition of supervision within psychology, I think in the early days, that's what it was all about. Oh, really? Oh, cool. And yeah, in terms of like, I think people practicing from more of a psychodynamic space. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, um, you know, those earlier forms of, of models of therapy, I think supervision was all about that. And that's my understanding anyway. But I think maybe as we've gone, you know, as we've gone on and we've, we've progressed, maybe we've lost a little bit of that. At times. Yeah. I think there are still people that are very good at looking at that interpersonal process. But I think, yeah, sometimes it's easy to perhaps to, to drop that. And I think other things come into it as well. Like I think if supervisors are burnt out themselves, then I'm not sure they're going to have the emotional energy to be able to give that to their, uh, to their supervisees. You know, and so maybe there's a a functional avoidance for both both parties there to avoid that, whether it's the supervisor not not feeling like they've got the emotional energy to be able to you know give that to their supervisee when they've got a whole bunch of other clients and all the other things that are going on, but maybe the supervisee as a result not feeling safe to bring that up or or um you know being anxious about bringing it up or not showing not being sure if they should so then there's yeah avoidance on both sides mm, that's really interesting i didn't consider that but it it just makes me feel angry again at like the burnout and it's just like oh it's endemic <laughs> it's for all of us um and yes that absolutely can affect the support that the supervisors can give to supervisees and just for listeners i think a takeaway from this section is that if you would like to unpack your emotional reactions, but you haven't done so before in supervision, you could actually just say to them, hey, is it all right if I unpack my emotional reaction to this client and we can talk through it and then see what they say? Would that be a good recommendation? Yeah, certainly. I guess that's the, that concept of, of coaching people with what we need. Yeah. You know? uh, some people have talked about in interviews, did talk about seeking personal therapy as well um, at times, because I guess while there's a, there can be a gray area between supervision and therapy, supervision is not therapy, you know, so there may be things that you might unpack or identify in supervision that does need um, individual therapy from somebody else. Um, so that's also a space that people can take those things to. And I would certainly highly encourage therapists themselves to be um, receiving therapy or at least have received therapy at some point. Yeah, no, I agree with that as well. And um, this episode will probably be coming out close to another episode that I've done with somebody else about therapists receiving therapy. And so, we, oh, cool. we, yeah, we think it's really important that therapists receive therapy to just get yeah. some perspective on their own lives, but also 
it can create that empathy for clients as well. So if we're talking about emotional distancing, if you are in the client hot seat, you can see how hard it is to actually bring your vulnerable self to that therapy space and how hard it might be to actually change. So I found it massively beneficial just from that process. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. I couldn't couldn't have articulated that better. <laughs> Thank you. Um, James, I'm going to do maybe uh, 360 and direct our attention to this idea of self-compassion. And mm. I can hear collective groans from listeners about this <laughs> because I always hear it from perfectionists and self-sacrificers as well. And they're like, oh, I've heard self-compassion before, but we're going to talk about it, listeners. Deal with it. Okay, tell us how self-compassion can assist with emotional labor. Yeah, and I think it's interesting you meant the little spiel there about that little internal cringe that we feel, <laughs> yeah. you know, when we talk about self-compassion, like, because I have it as well and I've had it, you know, when I first looked at it. But the more I looked at self-compassion and particularly in this context, I realized just how important it is that we take this seriously. Um, so there's a couple of different things. I think... It's very common um, for clinicians in general to have unrelenting standards and as a result of that to be very self-critical. That's more common in early career psychs than it is uh, in later career psychs. So self-compassion is kind of can be the antidote to a lot of those unnecessary self-criticisms and extreme um, self-criticisms. And then if you think about it in terms of what that means for you in the room with a client, you're taking out a whole load of anxiety and stress and all these other um, difficult emotions that we might be holding as a result of these self-critical thinking styles. So that's one thing that self-compassion can certainly help us with is, is be able to um, you know, negotiate those thought patterns um, better. Self-compassion can also help us increase our compassion for others as well. And so maybe we might find it easier to contact compassionate points of view that allow us to, to express uh, and to experience the emotions that we want to express with clients more authentically, um, more easily in the context of maybe really challenging clients or, or challenging moments with clients as well. So I think there's a number of different ways that self-compassion can be helpful, but I think it's, it's, it's such an essential um, antidote to the, I guess, the, the, uh, the epidemic of self-criticism in, in clinicians in general, but also early career, early career clinicians. Yeah, I noticed in your paper that you mentioned that early career clinicians could be more prone to self-criticism, so self-compassion could be even more important to them. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's a number of different factors. I mean, I guess you could probably look at the, the literature itself around early career psychs and um, self-criticism and that sort of thing and why that's um, such a strong kind of association. But I think there are lots of lots of factors, broad factors like systemic and um, cultural factors and things like that, that really, I guess, encourage I think psychologists and clinicians to develop that way of thinking. So I think it's just it, it's something that's spread our, you know, throughout our entire community. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I I would almost go as far to say that we're encouraged to be a little bit self-critical. Controversial claim, but just reflecting <laughs> on my own experiences with training, I didn't. I wouldn't say that my supervisors were critical but they had specific feedback and that was necessary at the early beginning stages of being a psychologist. You need that specific feedback to be like, say this, don't say that, look at this process, look at this treatment plan. What are the gaps here? What are you missing? What haven't you considered? And you almost internalize that voice for yourself. So I feel like for people who have perfectionistic tendencies, that self-critical voice can actually amplify. It's not a constructive feedback voice. It becomes a self-critical voice. 
What do you think of that? Totally. And I think that that would be also more relevant in the, say, if you're a clinician that has uh, maybe quite a high, high caseload and you're early in your career with a high caseload. So you have lots of questions and you have lots of things to try to unpack. So, you know, and you try to cram that into maybe one hour a week with a supervisor. It's, it's not a lot um, of time to, to really get all those needs met. Um, so you've got those needs to understand, understand what I'm, you know, formulation, treatment planning, models of therapy, but then there's the you in that as well. And I'm not sure an hour a week is really enough space for that. So I would agree. Um, so, yeah, I think sometimes, well, this is, I would say that peer supervision and peer support groups are just so essential. Yeah. And tying it back to the self-compassion. So I am a self-compassion convert. Like everybody else, I did groan <laughs> when I heard self-compassion. And then I was trying to extend my skills early this year and I was making lots of mistakes, like minor mistakes in therapy, but I was being quite harsh on myself. So then I got out Kristen Neff's book and I'm like, okay, I'm down with this. And I read the whole thing and I loved it. And when we talk about peer supervision, one component of self-compassion is called common humanity. And mm. when I hear peer supervision, it makes me feel so much better because I can hear that I'm not alone in this experience or I'm not alone in these mistakes. Everybody struggles with these difficult things that we're doing in sessions, these complex skills that we are trying to implement. And it makes me feel so much better and it's so much easier for self-compassion. Totally. And, and I think that's another mechanism of action there in the emotional labor process in that if we're, if we're having a reaction to clients and we're also able to understand that this is part of the work, these sorts of reactions are, are normal and commonly experienced by all clinicians and it's not me being a bad therapist yes. or me being whatever, um, I think that's such an important perspective and attitude to bring to the work that's going to lower the emotional load and the emotional labor that we're experiencing. The other thing with uh, self-compassion I think is, is quite cool as well is the imagery stuff around yeah. it. Like I think that, um, you know, particularly exercises where we're um, developing that, in, that compassionate image of whether it's, um, whether it's an abstract form or whether it's that person in our life that represents compassion. I think if you're bringing that to mind in session, it's that trigger that we might need um, to be able to, whatever we're dealing with there, um, whatever emotional dissonance we're experiencing, we can we can bring. I think that that imagery can help bring uh, or realign our emotions because it helps us access maybe the compassion that we need. The way I'd think about that is that it activates our self-soothing system. I think that's how um, Kristen yep. Neff and others put it. But it's that we need that compassionate imagery of how we would treat someone else. Sometimes that can be compassionate imagery, and we imagine the gestures, the tone of voice, the words, what we would say to them. And we do that in a compassionate way. And then that can activate that self-soothing in ourselves. I can completely understand how that would reduce our emotional burden that we carry in sessions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the other part is that you're activating a model there, a model of how we want to be interpersonally, but also how we want to be cognitively mm. with the client. Um, so we're, we're activating that compassionate model, that compassionate part of ourselves um, in, in the session to help yeah, realign what, what we're feeling and what we're, what we're experiencing. So listeners, the takeaway from this is don't delay, get on the self-compassion. I'll put a link in the show notes. <laughs> I did put it off for a few years, but honestly, when you're on board, it's good stuff. Oh, and I share that response as well. <laughs> like it took me a while to, to get around to the idea of self-compassion, but yeah, I'm definitely a full, fully fledged convert. <laughs> no, awesome. Okay. James, do you think there's anything that we've missed in talking about this topic of emotional labor, anything you haven't given a voice to today? Yeah, I think maybe the 
other aspect to managing emotional labor is not just what you're doing in the room. It's also how you're setting up your life outside of that. Of course. That, you know, um, we've talked a lot about emotional labor as countertransference or at least countertransference being a component to emotional labor, but emotional labor is a much broader construct than countertransference. Uh, countertransference is just one part of it. So um, I think, you know, there are all those other elements to our life that are going to either impact on the emotional labor that we're carrying or our capacity to restore and respond to emotional labor more effectively. So things like, you know, the cliche there is, is self-care, you know, and I think self-care just like self-compassion can activate that little internal cringe, but it's, it is, you can't overstate how important it is, you know? Um, and so find, you know, a lot, something that came up a lot was people talking about exercise um, or hobbies and interests as ways of, of, discharging that kind of leftover emotional distance they might have had from the work day. Um, so that's one thing that people do, you know, that that helps support their capacity to be in the, the, the space that they need to be in for their clients um, or to be more effective with their emotional labor. Um, so I think taking a moment to, to make sure that we're reflecting on how, how we structure our broader life um, and how that either helps us um, you know, have the resources available to engage in this emotional labor process um, or how it can help, yeah, help us restore from, you know, at, at times where that emotional labor has resulted in us in feeling quite depleted. Um, but also how do we structure our work day to help support our emotional labor as well? Like, you know, do we just have six clients in a row back to back with no space to process and reflect and work out, attend to the emotional parts of ourselves or do we build in moments of reflection and, um, and connection throughout the day too? Like, a, you know, one thing that I think is really important um, for us to be doing is to make sure just as simple as, you know, having lunch with our colleagues, you know, at work and using that potentially as a peer supervision space if it's appropriate because it's our work can be so incredibly isolating at times. You know, finding ways to nurture that, that social need that we have or, or finding ways to, to nurture that emotional part of ourself, building that into our actual work day is, is so essential too. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I do have the internal cringe when I hear self-care, but I absolutely see how essential it is because yeah. I'm just imagining this vicious cycle, right, where you don't take care of yourself and then you're stressed out. So you're underperforming in sessions or not performing to your standard. And then the self-critical voice comes up and then that causes even further stress. You continue to underperform, you get more tired and then you burn out. And so it sounds like just having that self-care outside of sessions, like you said, some way of discharging can be incredibly helpful. And I'm sure you know that through yourself being a clinician. For me, I got out the 1500 piece jigsaw this week and I'm almost <sighs> finished. I just got the roof of the house to go, but right. it is very helpful in discharging those emotions. And it's just yeah. numbing thing that I can do while I bring my stress levels down. And I, I, I don't know what I would do like I do the exercise and I do and I do like jigsaw puzzles and knitting and guitar and yeah, yeah I think those things are absolutely essential what do you do out of curiosity yeah so a couple of things like uh, I play cricket so that's a cool. big thing for me so and what I love about cricket is that it's it's um it's a chance to get into my body you know because mm. so much of our work is in our heads uh so that's and connection to nature a little bit as well like being out in the field you know that sort of thing and also social connection, um, you know, with the guys that I play with and helps me kind of get step into a different role. So I'm not always therapist, you know, um, you know, I can be maybe a different part of myself, which yeah. is, just, is also authentic. 
Um, so that's a big part of it. Music is a big part of it as well. I play guitar as well. Oh, cool. So that, that can be a way of, of you know, um, expressing what's, what I'm holding and what's, what's going on for me. Supportive relationships. I think that's like really key. Like I'm very blessed that I've got a really good supervision and peer supervision um, space and as well as really supportive colleagues at work as well. So there's all of that. Uh, what else would there be? Oh, I had something else that I wanted to say. <laughs> That's okay. Run away from my mind. If it comes back, just jump in and say it. <laughs> I do stamp collecting. That's what you yeah. wanted to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's there's lots of stuff there that helps keep me. Oh, the train. That's what it was. Are you like trainees or trains? The actual train. So because okay. I, I work in the city, yeah. I I have a train trip that's about um, door to door. It's about 40, 45 minutes. And actually that a lot of people hate the train, but I actually love it because I can sit there, I can read a book, you know, I can listen to music or whatever. But what it does is it creates this, this barrier, this buffer between, okay, home and personal life. And then there's this little transition period where I'm almost emotionally preparing myself for the day. And then um, do the work. And then on the way home, it gives me another 45 minutes or so to help. So have the space to kind of reflect, process, make, you know, do the other self-care things like read a book or listen to music, whatever it may be. That just helps me when I get home and I walk through the door, it takes the edge off that stuff. Mm. You know, so I'm more able to invest. There's less work family conflict and family work conflict, mm. you know, as a result of that. No, I love that. And I'm so glad that you remembered that and brought that up because I totally get it. When I was training and I had my placement, after my placement, I would walk half an hour to my partner's place of work. So my placement was really close to my partner's place of work and I would walk half an hour there. And I found a similar thing to what you're describing. I just found it was a great way to listen to music, to process what had happened. And I remember once that my lovely partner, he thought that he would pick me up from work instead from the placement. And I remember getting upset with him because I'm like, no, this is my processing time. I've got to walk for half an hour. Um, so yeah, it's, it's so essential just that, that time between, yeah, going into work and processing. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Thank you. Yeah. And it's great in, in your example there that you, you had that awareness that that's what you needed mm. and you're able to articulate that. I think I... I think a lot of us might in that situation just kind of go along with what's being asked of us without really thinking about, oh, hang on a minute, I really like this walk. I really need this walk. Um, so no, thank you. I'm going to make sure I keep that in my life yeah. And, yeah. and articulate that. So I think another thing that's important is that we listen to what our needs are and we, and we express that and we understand that the work that we do is very emotionally challenging and there is going to be uh, an impact on our personal lives as a result of that. Now, that doesn't mean that when we come home, it's all about us. You know, that's not going to be helpful. But I think that finding a way to negotiate or understand that the work that we do is going to impact on our capacity um, to be present at, at home. So how can, what are the things that we need to make sure that we can adequately and, and we can show up as we want to in our personal life with our family, as well as, you know, at work as well. That's such a good point. Thank you. You articulated that really well. And I'm so glad we're able to talk about not only reducing emotional labor, well, managing emotional labor during sessions, but how we support that by doing activities for ourselves outside of sessions. So it's not just therapists in therapy, it's that we need to create these deliberate actions to help us outside of therapy as well. So we can, I guess, have sustainable careers really. Absolutely. It's a, it's a whole of life thing. I think it's a, it's the, the way that we live our life is going to show up in the room with our clients. 
James, thank you so much. I found myself nodding energetically with you along with this. You have so many good points to share and I'm so grateful that you could come on as a guest and share with us your research about emotional labor. I do want to wrap up and I mentioned this to you off air, but I'm interested to know just as a way of summarizing everything, what would you say to a young James about emotional labor now that you've gone through all of this research? Big question. Um, I think I would say to young James that it's okay to struggle, Mm. you know, and it's okay to, the classic thing is you don't have to be perfect, you know, and you don't have to be the perfect therapist. You don't have to have it all, all your P's and Q's kind of organized in a row. It's it's okay to to find things difficult at times. Um, But what's really important is that you have a space where you can go to and actually share what's going on for you. Um, whether that's supervision or whether it's with a peer support network or something, you know, just having the space to be able to be vulnerable um, and to be authentic uh, because that's going to be career sustaining. And the more that um, young James tries to uh, maybe hide that stuff or feel like if I express it, then that means I'm not competent or I'm crap at my job um, or, or maybe I'm not cut out for the work. Um, the more we hold on to that way of thinking, the, the more damaging it's going to be. Wow, that was so beautiful. Can you do my imagery descriptive for me? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I just loved hearing you don't have to be perfect. It really speaks to me. So thank you so much. I loved hearing what you had to say to young James. And I think that really summarizes and encapsulates everything that we've been talking about today. Uh, James, if listeners want to learn more about you or get in touch, where can they find you? Yeah, so that you can find me on Twitter, um, even though it's an interesting place, place to be yeah. at the moment. Um, <laughs> uh, what's your handle? So I'm at JJ Clark with an E, psych. That's my Twitter. Um, you can get me on LinkedIn um, as well. I don't know what the handle, you just search. search That's right, James I search Clark. for it and I'll chuck it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, and if you, if you want to email me as well, you can at james.j.clark with an E at postgrad curtain.edu.au. Great. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Guys, if you have any questions for James about his research, he sounds like he would be delighted from, to hear from you, even though he's quite busy finishing up his PhD. <laughs> but I'm sure it's a nice distraction, right? Absolutely. I'm always, like, I just, I love talking about this topic. Um, so if people want to reach out, then I'm more than happy to, to give it some time. Great. Thank you so much, James. Listeners, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening and catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. As always, we need your help getting the word out about this podcast. The only way anyone will know about the show is if you tell them. Can you think of someone who might love the show? If so, let them know. You can find direct links to this show as well as all of the links I've mentioned in the show description. Thanks for listening. Have a good one and see you next time.